Welcome to Meanwhile in Memphis, where New Memphis is celebrating our city by providing a weekly window into the ways Memphians are solving problems, looking forward, and successfully shaping the community. Good morning, Memphis. My name is Anna Mullins-Ellis. I am here with your weekly episode, Meanwhile in Memphis, on WYXR, if you are listening live at 8 a.m. on Tuesday morning. Uh, or on our podcast, Meanwhile in Memphis, if you are not listening at 8 a.m. on Tuesday morning, or you just randomly happen to be listening to the podcast at the exact same time it's on the radio, <laughs> it would be very special. I am here with my friend and colleague, Christy Mullen. Christy, how are you today? I am good. Good morning, everyone. So, um, as I mentioned, this is your weekly episode of Meanwhile in Memphis. We are here with local nonprofit New Memphis. Uh, We are an organization that is working to make Memphis magnetic for great talent. We are working to develop and engage and deploy leaders across our community to shape our city's future for the better. Uh, It'd be weird if we were (laughs) trying to empower those who are shaping it for the worse. Um, So every week on this podcast, we invite a couple of guests usually to come and chat about the work that they are doing in the community. These are change makers, innovators, people who are um, really tackling the issues facing our city and making sure that we, again, are thinking about how we build a more um, prosperous future for for Memphis. So this week uh, is chocked full of one amazing guest who we are, you know, we actually talked to him a little bit earlier and we're, we're all still in awe of his, um, as Christy just said, he talks good. Um, <laughs> just so which eloquently. Is really what you want in a podcast guest, <laughs> as, as far as I'm concerned. Um, so, Christy, tell us who we've got today. Yes, today is a special TED episode, and we'll have Josh Spickler here in studio with us to speak about his work as the executive director as just of Just City and their mission and how that sparked the topic of his 2018 TED Talk, Crime and Lots of Punishment. Yes. So this is one of my favorite TED Talks. Um, For those of you who are new to this podcast or radio program, um, every couple of weeks we feature a past TEDx Memphis talk. Uh, New Memphis uh, helps put on TED Talks every year. It's a fantastic day of of local folks taking the TED stage and sharing um, an idea worth spreading, uh, which is sort of the ethic of TED. Mm -hmm. So um, I thought of Josh instantly as we started to do TED because um, I'd heard him speak. He, he, Again, as Christy said, he's a great talker. Um, I, that sounds sarcastic. I really mean it. You're going to be impressed. Um, yeah. But I, I heard him speak, um, you know, really what he does is both explain the work that they do at Just City, but um, really the the inspiration behind it and the way that he's able to describe what are very complex problems um, mm-hmm. that can are also often wrapped up in a lot of very intense emotion when we talk about crime and punishment and the judicial system. Um, it can feel very personal. So he just does such an amazing job, and I think that he gave one of the best TED Talks of that year. So we're thrilled to both have him here as a guest, uh, and then we will also share his 2018 TED Talk so you can hear it in full. Yeah, I'm super excited. He just, when I say he talks well, he does. He just makes everything more palpable too to those of us who may not be super well versed in what is going on in our criminal justice system, those that are dipping our toes in. So you are very in store for a great episode today. So let's kick it off right now. All right, guys, Josh Spickler is here in studio with us. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. Good. Thanks for having me. I know. It's super exciting to have you today. As I was telling you before we started, we brought you on today to talk not just about all the incredible things you're doing in the community with Just City, but we'll also hit your TED Talk later, which is exciting. Um, I let him know that like I watched it a couple of times. So, you know, everybody else will have to do the same. You and my mom. (laughs) We're your biggest fans at this point. Well, I want you to just start off by telling those listening a little bit about who you are and your background. 
Uh, well, I am um, a 46-year-old father of two and <laughs> long time married to Ginger over at Crosstown High. And um, I'm a lawyer by training. We started Just City about six years ago um, through some work we were doing at the Shelby County Public Defender's Office. And um, uh, I guess go back a little bit further. Mm -hmm. I, I came here from Nashville, from Middle Tennessee okay. to go to Rhodes College and went to law school here. And It's like um, you knew one of my questions was going to be, are you a... Lifelong Memphian. <laughs> yeah, right, right. I, I like to get that out there that I'm not, but, yes. but I'll I'll never leave, and yeah. um, I'm definitely here for uh, here for the duration. Been here now for many years, more than <laughs> more than 25 now. I oh, think. yeah, so, you're definitely you're a, yeah. a Memphian by choice. I feel like I qualify as a, as a native, but I know that can get me in trouble. Um, so Memphis is home, never never leaving. Trying our best uh, at Just City to to make it better, and uh, Just City is just a, a small nonprofit we started to. To help address some of the um, some of the problems with our criminal legal system, problems that uh, sort of have tentacles into many other mm -hmm. systems in this community, and and it's a system that uh, uh, you know keeps us down, frankly. And so we're trying to address some of that, and uh, it's exciting yeah. work. I love it. It's very exciting. So you just kind of gave us a little snippet into Just City. Kind of talk a little bit more about that and how you guys actually are activating on that work. Yeah, well, what we try to do. Um, is is focus on areas in the criminal legal system where um, uh, where uh, money, where uh, wealth is a barrier to justice mm -hmm. in, in you know in the law and, and in everyone's understanding of what we're trying to do with a criminal justice system. It's um, you know it's accountability, which some people call punishment for for when you run afoul of the social contract mm -hmm. that we all have with each other, laws. Um, and then the second part of that, aside from accountability, is is restoration and and getting people back into our society, into our community safely, uh, so that they don't come back to our mm -hmm. jails, prisons, courtrooms, and things like that. And so we fail pretty miserably at that, mm. <laughs> as as not just a yeah. city but as a country. And so uh, one of the reasons we fail is because because people who have money uh, get one path through that system, mm -hmm. and people who don't have another path. And so at Just City, we've tried to identify places where those two paths are um, are pretty obvious, and and we try to disrupt that. Yeah, like when I was re doing some research for this episode, I went to you guys' website, and on the main page, there's a quote, and it says, you know, you guys operate under the core belief that you are not the worst mm -hmm. thing you have ever done. Yeah. And I just kind of sat there for, it was very early this morning. <laughs> I'm not, it was like 5 a.m. And I'm like, that's the first thing I read in the morning. I'm like, okay, we're going to sit with this today. <laughs> um, but like, why did, I just felt that was so impactful. Can you speak a little bit to why you feel that is so important? Yeah, uh, of course. Um, I mean, that's not an original quote or, right. or, or idea. I believe we probably stole that from Brian Stevenson, who runs <laughs> yeah. the Equal Justice Initiative in Montgomery, Alabama. And he's, you know, widely quoted as saying that. Mm -hmm. And so we just sort of adopted it because, uh, you know, back to the criminal legal system that we have, it does tend to treat people as if that is the thing that they are, okay. which is easy to do. And it makes a lot of the stuff we do a whole lot more convenient and a whole lot more palatable. If we treat someone who stole as a thief, mm -hmm. then it's easy to send them away for a, you know, a, a disproportionately long time, or it's, mm -hmm. it's easy to keep them under supervision for a disproportionately long time. It's easy to saddle them with a criminal history, a criminal record that goes with them for the rest of their life because they're a thief. Uh, but if you start from the premise that it's a person who mm -hmm. made a really bad decision um, and had a need that probably drove I was about that to say, decision. what's the why of that decision? Right. If you treat crime like that, if you treat people like that instead of like thieves or murderers or you know fill in the blank um you you have a whole lot easier time can you know 
constructing systems that uh, that meet those needs and that keep people from coming back and that hold them accountable. Um, and and so I don't know. That's just a that's a good way of of us reminding ourselves mm-hmm. and us reminding people uh, who want to know more about our work that um, that this is what we're about. We're uh, we're trying to flip the script. We're trying to change the narrative about what we're doing with our criminal legal system. Uh, and it's you know it's treat people as if they've maybe made a mistake, but also to try to keep them from coming back because they're not that thing. Right? Right. They are they are still a human being, still a member of our community. Most people who go into the system come back to our communities most quickly, but even folks who commit serious crimes come back eventually. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we have to keep in mind, um, you know, what they can offer and um, how we'll how we'll live with them when they get back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love, I mean, what I think is so fascinating about your work, in addition to inserting individual humanity into the system. So how do we, again, approach this person as a, as a human being who has people who love them, who have motivations. I think it also helps us see the impact of these systems on the broader community. So however people want to approach this work, um, you know, and I find this is particularly true in Memphis where public safety is is such an issue and we have so many conversations that feel in many ways circular about how we solve that problem to acknowledge that, yes, this person will be coming back to society. And if we have this time with them, how do we make that a productive period of time where they're, we're not just been, you know, again, I think some people, it's hard for them to think about like delivering kindness to somebody who has committed some kind of crime. Um, but to know that it is also a kindness to the community, I think is something that um, is important to remember. And the data certainly like susses yeah. that out. So I'm curious, um, well, before we even get into like the broader um, <laughs> philosophies of, of of the criminal justice system, tell us about the programming of Just City. So yeah. I know some of it is yeah. direct support to those who are in the, the legal system. Um, but it's also some advocacy work, I believe. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we think that we, we um, there's definitely a need, but we don't want to be another charity. We don't want to build the biggest program that we can build to address a, a obvious and major deficiency in a system, um, which I think is hard. Well, I don't think. I know it's very hard to do. Uh, there are a lot of really great uh, ministries and, and nonprofits in this community that do an amazing job of meeting people's needs and sort of dealing with the fallout of broken systems. And um, those are critical. If they went away tomorrow, we would be in dire straits. We'd be mm-hmm. in really big trouble. But we want to be a, a, an organization that does meet some of that need, but does so in a way that's demonstrative of the problem that created it. And uh, and we want to focus our our energy as much of it as we can on the solution to that systemic you know dysfunction. And so, again, we try to do that in the criminal legal system where money can sort of disrupt this these two different paths and this this idea that people with money are treated one way and people without money are treated another. And so the mm-hmm. the, the first program that we kind of developed and, and had in, in in place actually before Just City started was our Clean Slate Fund, which um, helps people who qualify under Tennessee law get their criminal history erased and sealed so that when they go to a job interview, they can answer the question legally, um, have you ever been convicted? They can say no. And mm. once they can do that, opportunity changes. It shifts dramatically. Right. Well, in Tennessee, we put a huge price tag on that uh, process long, you know, seven, eight years ago. Uh, and so we've been working not only to uh, pay that fee for people and get them through that process, uh, but also to reduce the fee itself so that people don't need us mm-hmm. anymore and so that people can access that clean slate without us and a lot more affordably. And so we have with uh, 
the help of a lobbyist in Nashville because that's what you have to do yeah. a lot of times is uh, is the dirty work at the legislative <laughs> in the legislative process. We've reduced that fee from four hundred and fifty dollars when we started uh, to a hundred dollars currently, and, oh, and wow. we have uh, a bill. Uh, in this year's General Assembly that could make that $100 possibly go away. So mm -hmm. we've worked to de, uh, sort of deconstruct that whole barrier of getting a criminal record cleared. Uh, and we've almost succeeded, which is quite shocking for me to even say and, and imagine that by the end of 2021, someone could walk into the clerk's office and not be charged a right. fee at all mm. to have their criminal history. It's um, just kind of impressive, honestly. It's, it's, <laughs> like uh, It's exciting. And, you know, a lot of Sort of good fortune and good timing, but uh, and good leadership through you know lawmakers of of both parties mm -hmm. in in this state have sort of begun to adopt this idea that expungement is a good thing that that criminal mm -hmm. histories are essentially punishment for life and mm -hmm. and recognizing that that's often the worst punishment. I mean, you can do a week in jail, you can pay a five hundred dollar fine, but if you have to go into a job interview for the rest of your life and answer to something you did when you were twenty two. That's a life sentence of sorts, and it, and it really hampers people's ability to prosper and find opportunity in our community. So Clean Slate Fund, sorry, long answer, but Clean Slate Fund. No, I love perfect. it. I'm like mesmerized right now. <laughs> it's one of our programs. Um, we can talk more about this hopefully in a minute, but Bail Fund, uh, we have the Memphis Community Bail mm -hmm. Fund, which does a similar thing with, with people who are taken into the jail uh, when they're accused of a crime and they're held there uh, basically with a price on their freedom. It's it's called bail. It's, mm. you know, people uh, are familiar with the idea of bondsman and bond and, and bail. We've seen law and order. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> dun, so, dun, this is where yeah. I wish I had a sound machine. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so we pay that, uh, we pay that for people and we sort of disrupt this idea that, that money, that finance, that wealth have anything to do with people's incentive to come mm -hmm. back to court because it doesn't have anything to do with it. It doesn't have anything to do with our safety as a community. It only has, again, the, the function of separating the system into two groups, mm -hmm. people without and people with. Right. And the people without sit in jail and the pressure to plead guilty and the pressure to make decisions is very intense. People who are out and back with their families, back at their jobs, mm -hmm. back in their classrooms, meeting with their lawyers in a comfortable yeah. office, they're making different decisions. They have that so, time to prepare exactly. and like think. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So the bail fund does the same thing as the clean slate fund. It disrupts this this system that's divided in two. Wow. I'm curious, and I don't want to put you on the spot, but I know you're going to know the answer, so I'm going to ask <laughs> it. Historically speaking, like, how did cash bail become the norm in the United States? And my like kind of yeah. uh, tangential question to follow up is, as you guys are looking at your work and the vision that you have for Tennessee's criminal justice system, where are there models, either in other states or in other countries, yeah. that have you know different systems with demonstrably better outcomes? Yeah, excellent questions, um, and I, I do. I've, I've thought about it a little bit. <laughs> he's answered like, the questions. He's ready. <laughs> answered the questions before the, the money. The idea of money bail, this idea that that a financial incentive will bring someone back to court or back to answer to the charges, is from ancient England. I mean, it's mm. it's many many centuries old, and uh, you know started when we as as humans began to develop what what looks like our modern legal systems. And it was just the, their answer to that problem. Like we, we don't, we don't want to hold people until we give them some sort of trial, some mm -hmm. sort of fair adjudication. How can we make sure that they don't run off? And as you can imagine in feudal England, you know, <laughs> a few, a few pounds, a few dollars, uh, was probably a, a great start, right. To get someone on the hook for answering to the charges against them. Well, 
in America and the Philippines, which are, by the way, the only two countries in the world that have a commercial bail industry, mm. this has created a, a capitalism, <laughs> an incentive yeah. for capitalism to step in. And that's where the bail bond industry comes in. And we've developed as states and, and uh, local governments uh, the ability to, to allow uh, bondsmen to come in and say, I don't have the full amount, but I have a promise to give you the full amount. And, in, and that promise is given in exchange for families usually – paying a percentage, which is this 10% that we're all familiar with that bondsmen get. And, uh, and you know, bondsmen largely actually don't serve the function that they would say if they were on this podcast. They do. And, uh, <laughs> We've got know, one coming in next. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'll definitely This listen. is a point, a point counterpoint. I'll definitely kind of listen show. to that. <laughs> um, you know, people show up and, and bondsmen are very, very rarely actually held to account for the money that they're supposedly promising. They very rarely have to pay up mm -hmm. um, because people generally come back, number one. But even if they don't, they're generally captured and brought before the court by law enforcement. And when that happens, bondsmen very rarely lose that money. Mm -hmm. And so it's a, it's a very profitable industry. And it has a lot of money um, at risk when we talk about reform. And to your, the second part of your question, those reforms look like, I mean, the easiest way is to point to the federal system. The federal uh, government has a criminal justice system that operates across the country, and their um, way of dealing with this this problem of will someone come back to court, mm -hmm. is someone at risk to the community, is uh, is the same. And they have a money bail system, but if you don't make it, you can't pay the bail, then they presume it's too high. So they're, they're actually considering your ability to pay. Mm -hmm. It's much more of a binary in the federal system. You're either in or you're out. And there are states and location localities where – that's the answer, right? It's, mm. This should not depend on whether you can scrape together dollars. Uh, it should depend on an assessment of, of of really your need. Right. Like other people would say risk, and I just said it a second ago, but really <laughs> this is about what people need. By and large, the people who come to our criminal legal systems need something. They may have committed an error and made a bad decision and hurt someone mm -hmm. that they need to be held accountable for, and maybe they they, they ought not go right back out into the community, you know, but that's about a need that they have more than it is about a risk that a human being has to any of us. They're speaking of humans as risks is just a, you're wrong from the start there. Mm -hmm. But anyway, that's another story. That's another <laughs> podcast. I love it. I'm like sitting here just kind of taking it all in because I feel like there's so many prongs and facets to this whole discussion that we could literally be here all afternoon and we probably could. not cover it all. We could. Something that I think is interesting with you, though, that you can offer a unique perspective on besides everything, obviously, you've already told us. But uh, we ask this question a lot on the show is like kind of how COVID has affected the work you're yeah. doing in the community. And I think you are a perspective we haven't gotten to hear from. Like, how has that affected? not only your work at just city but as like criminal justice system as a whole yeah that's a whole podcast in and of itself but love I'll, it I'll try to, I'll <laughs> we're gonna try have to, to bring brief. you back for repeats oh, every no, so I'll, often. Be, I'll be i'll be brief i mean <laughs> anna mentioned this a second ago when she talked about you know how it's our yeah our our problem as a community you know it, it's in covid did if did nothing else it demonstrated exactly that because mm -hmm. this virus it doesn't care about jail right. walls it doesn't care about prison walls it doesn't care if you're a, a prison employee or or you live in the prison it doesn't care if you are a deputy who's bringing someone from the jail to the courtroom or if you're the person being brought to the courtroom mm -hmm. it doesn't care and a jail and a prison but but a jail in particular for our purposes we knew from the beginning the first thing we knew about this virus was that it thrived on cruise ships mm -hmm. right and a jail is nothing if not a giant cruise ship with a lot fewer amenities <laughs> parked in the middle of your downtown Gosh, right yeah. and, it, and, and it, it's even worse because it has three shifts of employees a day like a cruise ship has it all self-contained mm -hmm. but in a jail those folks go home 
and then they come back and then they go home and then they come back. And so it COVID quickly demonstrated like a jail is all of our problem because the close proximity, the lack of social distancing, the lack of hygiene, all the things we were told to do mm-hmm. to protect ourselves were impossible well, for employees yeah. and for people living in, in jails. And yet you had the turnover and the spread possible. And we saw it in prisons across the country too. Some of the, not some of, but the largest hotspots in the country were prisons, were detention facilities. And so um, that's one reason, uh, one way that COVID obviously yeah. impacted the criminal legal system. But it also sort of just rightfully so in some instances, shut things down, right? People coming from the community into courtrooms, that hasn't really been happening Mm -hmm. for a year. Jury trials have not been happening for more than a year. Um, And it's sort of worked its way into our our habits in the criminal legal system so that um, people are getting justice a lot more slowly. Okay. uh, And people are staying in jail longer. And um, it's, it's just as with everything, sort of ripped open mm-hmm. um, everything to see how bad things are and and who suffers, right? And the people who suffer in the criminal legal system because of COVID are the same people who are suffering in the medical system and the healthcare system and right. the education system, right? The, the people without resources in the criminal legal system are carrying the load just as they are in all of our other systems because of COVID. Right. It's definitely a full circle there. A very depressing circle. A very dis- <laughs> not the circle of life, the most depressing circle. Just sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, yeah, we asked. <laughs> yeah, we no, didn't, I mean, we didn't think you were going to go. It's been great. It's, no, it's right. been perfect. It's actually been a really nice holiday for it us. Right. Um, well, we're going to get into your TED talk in a minute. Um, so you gave this TED talk in 2018. So we are here three years later. Um, at that point, Justity was about two years into your work. Is that? Yeah, that sounds right. Two and a half. Yeah. Maybe. yeah. Um, so I'm curious, in the five-plus-year journey of your work leading Just City, you know, what are, one, what are your kind of big aha moments um, that, you know, even as you were stepping foot into the nonprofit world? Um, and then, you know, two, again, I'm asking you all these, like, long, multi-pronged questions. <laughs> as you are looking to the next five years, what is on the horizon? I mean, you've mentioned, obviously, what is an incredible success around um, expungement reform, but I'm curious what, you know, what's... I, I, I've got an inkling that we haven't solved it yet. Um, <laughs> the whole justice Just system isn't fixed. So I assume that you're not sunsetting quite yet. Um, so what is the next big rock that you guys are going to yeah. be moving towards? Yeah, the aha moment. Man, I don't know. Um, uh, you know, it's it's probably back to the expungement fee success. I mean, going from $450, which was the third highest fee in the country for mm-hmm. such a procedure, to, to, you know, potentially $0 in Shelby County and, and other counties where they decide not to charge this $100. Like in five years is remarkable to Indeed. me. And, and and I used to go to Nashville before COVID, but also just when we first started Just City, we'd, we'd make the rounds with lawmakers and, and meet lawmakers from the, you know, the Democratic Party, lawmakers from the Republican Party. And and listening to them talk about this issue of criminal justice um, is re- was really eye-opening and and the theme that emerged in my experience of talking to people who who have a lot of power um, was that if they had a personal relationship or if they had a, a, a an experience uh, specific to them with the criminal legal system, whether it be themselves or a loved one, um, the frame shifts mm-hmm. dramatically, which goes back to our you know our statement about not being the worst thing right. that we've ever done. Right? You would you would hear it in their voice when they would give you a um, uh, you know, uh, um, an example uh, of of a person like got in a bar fight as a child, mm-hmm. or as a, as a teenager, or as a college student, and you were like, 
you're talking about yourself, aren't you? <laughs> you got in a bar fight in Knoxville in college. Now <laughs> you're asking me, right? So you and you hear them talk about the person that they mentored or, right. or wrote letters with, who's in a Tennessee prison, and um, so I mean that's that's obviously not something that I needed to start a nonprofit mm-hmm. and work get it for five years to learn, but like it was real. It's true. It's very true that mm-hmm. when people have something very close to them to connect to that they respond differently and so we've got a whole lot of work to do in the state right. of Tennessee I mean we're, we're nowhere near um, a model for anything but particularly for criminal justice but but the you would you would hear folks and you know our governor who I disagree with on like 99.999% of just about everything he's ever said um, you know he he had an experience before he became governor and still is very involved in a, in a ministry in Nashville that that goes into prisons and that and and matches up people out of prison with people in prison and that has impacted him even though he won't make decisions that I want him to make right you can hear it in his um in his comments on this issue he unfortunately can't see it in the policies but we'll again <laughs> we I'll, digress yeah <laughs> Um, but, you know, he, he got m- many people on his staff and many people throughout state government, including legislators, to, to engage with people in prisons in Tennessee. And that's what we need, right? Like, he hasn't put it to work yet, and I'm, not, mm-hmm. I'm never going to be happy anyway. But, <laughs> but that kind of thing is what can bring us where we need to be and can yeah. bring us to this place where we're not the worst thing that we've ever done. And so that's, you know, again, not, not hugely of an aha, not a huge aha moment, but... Um, no, I'm sure that yeah. I mean I'm, I'm, I imagine this is a skill that was a little polished as you were um, a, a, an attorney in your own right. Um, but making sure that we're that you're making the pitch, you know, how do you how do you warm somebody to this idea mm-hmm. who you know sees themselves or needs to see themselves as being quote unquote hard on crime? Exactly. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that's certainly a, lo- yeah. a lesson that. Um, and 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 well, yes, that's right. <laughs> I don't want to go too far down another road, but like you know, what's next for us and and. You know, expungement was kind of yeah. easy. It's this thing out here on the edges where the people who benefit from it are, I, I call the, you know, the summa cum laude graduates of mm-hmm. the criminal legal system. They've done everything they were asked to do. They've paid all this money that they were asked to pay. They've stayed out of trouble for uh, a period of time that's been told them. Mm-hmm. And then we charged them $450, right? Um, Interesting. So that's an easy problem to solve because you're pointing to people who did what we told them the, to. They right? did what was, yeah. Right? And the, the real work is elsewhere in that spectrum and money bail and pretrial detention is a great place um, that we're going to focus a lot of our energy and because of covid we're fortunate enough to to be able to focus for the last year on getting people out of jail with the bail fund we had a Mm. huge year we bailed out 370 or so people over over the course of the march to march first covid year and um and the work ahead is to again like we like i talked about at the top to, to deconstruct the whole system of having money determine who's in our jail and who's not. And all the reasons we've been talking about, about people's lives and, and the impact on it, but step back and talk from a from a civic perspective and from a government perspective, how much money we spend to do this. And it's, it's hundreds of millions of dollars in this city and county alone. That's not a number across the state, but every year costs us hundreds of millions of dollars to run that jail. And, you know, as we sit here, they've been instructed by an independent jail inspector to reduce that population by 50% to help keep people safe from COVID. But reducing that population by 50% would save us tens of millions of dollars a year as a community. And those are dollars that we could use to do all the things we talk about wanting to do, Mm. investing in people and investing in communities and neighborhoods. Those are the kind of things that keep people from coming in touch with law enforcement to begin with. And 
won't require us to need, not that we do, so many police officers mm -hmm. and so many blue light cameras and so many squad cars and guns and vests and tanks and all the things that we buy to keep ourselves, quote unquote, safe. Um, and so we want to help guide this community toward that, toward a, a jail that is right-sized if we must have one. That It's got to be of a size and, and scale that it makes sense. And this one doesn't make sense from a human perspective and it doesn't make sense from a financial perspective. And so hopefully over the next five to 10 years, hopefully it won't take that long, but <laughs> we, will, we will be a part of some major change in Shelby County and in, in Memphis that uh, right-sizes the jail and its function. Sounds like you're well on your way to creating that change for <laughs> well, sure. And I think you kind of just set it up perfectly to roll into your TED Talk because huh? uh, you kind of talk about ways, like two key ways to approach these things. So guys, we are going to go into Josh Spickler's TED Talk, which is called Crime and Lots of Punishment. Last year in the Atlantic, ta Coates wrote this. The hammer of criminal justice is the preferred tool of a society that has run out of ideas. People go to jail for not having a driver's license. People go to jail for not having a home. People go to jail for having a mental illness that presents as threatening to us. People go to jail for possessing substances they're addicted to. People also go to jail, of course, for being violent, taking other people's property, for damaging property that's not theirs. In communities like ours, far too often our response to that kind of antisocial behavior is to put those people in a cage, and that doesn't work. There's another real big problem with the way we do things is that it doesn't necessarily apply if you have money. People with money buy car insurance and get a driver's license. People with money rent an apartment and live there. People with money have health insurance that helps them get their mental health care that they need. People with money go into rehab if they're addicted. And people with money can even buy their way out of jail if they're facing a charge of committing a violent offense under the rules of our money bail system. Far too often, if you come into contact with the criminal justice system and you don't have money, you end up in a cage. If you come into the contact with the criminal justice system and you do have money, you don't. So we're definitely using a hammer to treat problems that don't respond to that. And I think that we haven't run out of ideas, however. I have two for you today, and there are lots and lots more great ideas of how to treat people in the criminal justice system without using a hammer. So I'm going to tell you about two of those, but first, I want to tell you about my friend Ray. Ray grew up in Memphis, Tennessee. He graduated Carver High School. All right. He joined the Navy. He learned to weld in the Navy, and he served aboard the USS Forrestal. That's this aircraft carrier right there. And Ray has told me stories of seeing things around the world in the Mediterranean, in the South Pacific, the Suez Canal. I can only imagine a young kid leaving Memphis for the first time and seeing the things that he saw from the deck of that aircraft carrier. But when I met Ray, several years later, it was the year 2000, we met outside this courtroom at 201 Poplar at our Criminal Justice Center here in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, I was a 25-year-old public defender fresh out of law school, and Ray was one of my clients. By the time I met Ray, he was a 40-something homeless man addicted to crack cocaine. He was facing his second offense DUI, which carries with it a 45-day mandatory sentence. But Ray had scraped together enough money to bail out of jail, and so he would meet me outside the courtroom from wherever he had slept the night before. At the same time, I had 20, sometimes 30 other clients, most of whom were in jail, and many of whom were struggling with the same problems that Ray was struggling with, mental health issues, addiction, homelessness. And my job as a 25-year-old public defender right out of law school was to help those people. And I didn't have a lot that I could do 
for them. And so Ray's case was particularly challenging because when we would sit down and talk about what to do about his case, I had 20 people sitting in cages, wanting out of cages, who needed my time. And we struggled to, uh, to figure out what to do with Ray. And we struggled with all those people. And the problem with folks like Ray was that for 10 years, he'd been cycling in and out of the system. Because when we bring people into the system like Ray and like all of my many, many other clients over the years, and we don't have uh, anything other than a cage to give them, when we let them out, because we always, almost always let them back out, they come back. And there's a revolving door in our criminal justice system because of that. Uh, and when you do that long enough, we've been doing it as a country for 30 or 40 years, your obligatory TEDx graph slide looks like that. <laughs> the year I was born is right in the middle, just by coincidence. 1974, we had about 218,000 people in our jails and prisons in this country. 218,000. Today, that number is well above 2 million. I'm no math major, but that's 10 times the population in my lifetime. And Ray was one of those guys. And so many of my clients have been one of those people. And here's the thing, though. It doesn't apply to people like this, who about the same time Ray got into trouble, he got into trouble. That's Robert Downey Jr., who was arrested on August 25th, 1999, for speeding down Sunset Boulevard with uh, some heroin, some cocaine, and just for good measure, a loaded 357 Magnum in the trunk of his car. Robert Downey Jr. didn't get a 25-year-old public defender to help him figure this out, as you can imagine. Robert Downey Jr. came to court with a team of attorneys, uh, and they weren't there to, to proclaim his innocence and convince the judge that it wasn't really Robert Downey Jr. that did these things. They came with a plan on how to keep Robert Downey Jr. from doing it again, a plan to address his mental health issues, a plan to address his addiction and substance abuse issues. And they presented that to the judge, and the judge agreed. And the judge gave Robert Downey Jr. probation. And Robert Downey Jr. left the courthouse came back because addiction and mental health are very complicated issues that so many of us struggle with. And when you add in the hammer of criminal justice, it becomes nearly impossible to escape. In fact, he got not just two, three, four, but five chances before the judge finally sentenced him, sentenced him to prison. But he had resources. And the, my, my clients, Ray, and my, my, so many of my other clients, they don't have those. But here's the good news. We have ideas. This is a TEDx talk. So here's my first idea. This is an idea from right here in Shelby County, in Memphis, Tennessee. We have something called the Jericho Project, and it's not radical. It's the same exact thing that Robert Downey Jr.'s lawyers did for him. The Jericho Project builds a plan for people in the jail at 201 Poplar at, 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 in Shelby County uh, for when they get out. And it's only a four-month-long plan. It's not very long. Uh, and it uses largely resources that already exist in our community. Uh, but before you leave the back door of that jail as a Jericho client, you know where you're going to get your medicine. You know when your next appointment is. You know where you're going to live if you need that. And you have someone to help you do all of that for only four months. At a very low cost, you have a plan. The people that the Jericho Project serves have a really high recidivism rate. They come back into the system very, very often, 80% of the time, because they suffer from mental uh, health issues and substance abuse issues. With the Jericho Project, we've cut that rate in half to 40%, which is still a lot, but I think that testifies to the complicated nature of these uh, types of people. But it works, and it works the same way that people with resources use the criminal justice system now and have forever. And so it's made a big impact on the back door of the jail in this community. We've got a problem at the front door of the jail as well, because we have a system, unlike any other place in the world except for the Philippines, there are only two countries in the world that use money bail. And money bail is essentially this. If you uh, can pay a bail before you answer to the charges against you, you can get out of jail. Pre-trial detention serves two purposes. It serves the purpose of making sure you get back to court when you're supposed to be there, and it protects the community if you're a high risk to reoffend. And sometime centuries ago in England, 
we decided that money was the way to make this decision. And so we attach a dollar amount to someone who we arrest and charge with a crime. And that dollar amount is supposed to take care of that risk. Well, it doesn't work like that, as you can imagine, because you can be violent, you can have repeat, you can have a very bad record, but if you have money, you pay you out. Conversely, you're poor, it's your first or second offense, it's a low-level drug offense, and you can't scrape together $100, you wait in a cage. So the system, again, creates one, one path for people with money, one path for people without. So the idea is this, and it's not original to Just City uh, and to Memphis, Tennessee, but it's a community bail fund. We've started one here in Memphis. We've started one in Nashville. And what we're doing is poking a hole in this idea that money should have anything to do with this. We collect money, take donations from the community. We use that to bail people out. We remove the incentive that they have. It's not their money. If they don't come back, we don't go after them. But guess what? They come back. And in Nashville, for more than 110 times now, we've bailed people out, and 97% of the time they come back. We've had no serious incidents of reoffense, And that mirrors bail funds all across the country. They're sprouting up everywhere. We had a couple in the South for the first time. They've been in New York. They're in California and Boston and Chicago. And they're all showing the same thing, that people come back, that using money to decide who gets let out and who doesn't is a terrible, terrible way to do it. So what can a TEDx audience do, and why do I have a Cadillac slide up here? Um, <laughs> here's what you need to know. You need to know about Ray, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about him in just a second. But Jericho projects and bail funds are easy. The answer to this hammer of criminal justice is not more Jericho projects and more bail funds. The answer is a fundamental shift in how we see the people like Ray and the dozens and hundreds and thousands of men and women that I've represented over the years. Seeing them, as my uh, co-speaker earlier today, Greg Thompson, said, uh, with the irre irrevocable glory, irreducible glory that they represent, the potential that they represent, and not the despicable things that they've done. Because we all have that irreducible glory, and we've all done those despicable things. But we don't have a system that recognizes that that 19-year-old sailor <laughs> seeing the world for the first time on top of an aircraft carrier that he helped hold together with his welds, what kind of potential would we see in a young man like that? But what we saw was a 45-year-old drug addict, homeless, out in front of a courtroom. And that's what we gave him. Well, luckily for us, um, people like Ray are incredibly resilient. Uh, Ray did his 45 days because he had me for a lawyer. <laughs> but 25, 28 of those days, he got to spend in inpatient drug treatment. It's something... Uh, in Ray's experience, something in Ray's brain made him decide someday during that 28 days, he was done. And he, wanted to, and he wanted to live a life of sobriety. And so every day for 18 years, he's woken up and he's decided, I'm not going to use drugs and alcohol today. He went to work. As soon as he got out, he still works for that same employer uh, he, for 18 years. He's been employee of the year. He has 17 people that he supervises. He bought a Cadillac. <laughs> he bought two Cadillacs, actually. This, he's... He's had a couple, and, and he paid off every debt that he ever owed. Uh, but he's the exception. He's the exception because we do have a hammer, and we use it far too often. And opportunity and seeing the potential in people is not something that's in the conversation in our criminal justice system. It absolutely has to be. And we depend on people like you to force that, to force our leaders to make decisions that create opportunities like this for people like Ray so that we can have more and more and more stories like that because otherwise this hammer of criminal justice is going to continue to destroy our communities. Thanks.
All right, welcome back, guys. Just a reminder, you are tuning into a special episode of Meanwhile in Memphis Live on WYXR with our guest, Josh Spickler. So, Josh, we just listened to your TED Talk where you kind of opened with a quote that referenced the hammer of criminal justice system. And since your talk is based on two ideas you have to treat people in the criminal justice system without using a hammer, can you kind of help us level set for those listening? When you say a hammer, what do you mean? Yeah, and and just to be very clear, those ideas were not mine. Yes. <laughs> I had the good fortune of, <laughs> of participating in, in some some great programs when I was in the public defender's office. But yes. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, the old saying about when you're a hammer, everything's a nail. And uh, when we began to, well, this can go way back. I mean, we can get into into enslaved people and the foundations of this country very quickly, and we'll maybe we'll save that for the end mm-hmm. if we get to. But but when we began as a country to develop our modern criminal legal system, um, we, you know, it represented one thing, and that was punishment, mm-hmm. and that was how can we control people. I, I would I would argue that 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 control is a vestige of owning people mm-hmm. and, and the importance of controlling people when you own them bled right on into a modern criminal legal system that that's primary focus was control. Um, and people with different opinions would argue that that's how you keep yourself safe is mm-hmm. that you control quote dangerous people. Um, but um, that's, that's the hammer. The hammer is control. And mm-hmm. that, that in America, unlike any other place in the history of the world, looks like cages. It looks like prisons and jails and detention facilities, starting with children, starting with, you know, 13-year-olds who, who may break the law and are brought into basically jails for kids. I mean, we, other countries, the rest of the world does yeah. not do this. And so the hammer that ta Coates talks about mm-hmm. is, is punishment. It's control. It's op, it's surveillance. It's uh, all the tools of a modern Amer- of the modern American criminal legal system. And so, when you have that, when you invest in that the way this country did over the seventies, eighties, and nineties, you have a huge surplus of hammers because mm-hmm. <laughs> we've got cages that are a half a mile from us, way, way more than we need. We've got cages across this state, and most of them are full because of a financial incentive to keep mm-hmm. them full. And and so when we see a social problem, especially in our cities and especially in communities of color, we reach into our tool bag and all we find are hammers. And so, um, you know, that's about sentencing. That's about pretrial that we've already talked about. I mean, it's it's all we've got a lot yeah. of times and it's not what people need. What is that number? I know in your talk you referenced it was a 2015 number of well over 2 million people in the system. What is, is that number yeah. similar now or it have, has it even increased since then? It hasn't increased. I mean, COVID knocked it down a little mm-hmm. bit, but it's still more than 2 million. Yeah. I mean, it, it's fluctuated over the past several years between 2 and 2.3 million people or Americans who are in some sort of correction or, or pretrial facility. And that's about the same today. And, yeah. and we've not, as a country, done a whole lot to to begin to shrink that population. And that's what you guys are helping us do. <laughs> We're trying. <laughs> We're trying. I thought it was very cool because you spoke on it a little bit beforehand about, you know, the access to wealth. And then in your talk, you give that juxtaposition between between Ray, who is the guy Mm -hmm. you knew, and then Robert Downey Jr. and kind of (laughs) the path they took. And I thought that was one. I thought that was very cool because it helps you really level set in your mind. Like, okay, these are the ways that having access to wealth changes the course of your journey entirely. Mm -hmm. Um, My first question to that is, how is Ray today? Like, I need to know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Ray, whose name has been changed to protect him because he did not want me using his name way back when. It's okay. When He's, uh, you know, I've, I've heard from him this year, but um, not only a couple times. He's fine. I mean, yeah. he's... he's 
you know, I think as I, I think I, I tried to to uh, say in the in the TEDx talk is, you know, people with who who struggle with addiction, it's not finished. It's never mm-hmm. finished. It, they take it to their graves and. Um, and as the last I spoke to him, he had won his battle with addiction the day before. Mm-hmm. And I think that's all we can say about those of us who, who suffer from addiction is that, um, you know, yesterday I did, I, I conquered it. And mm-hmm. so he's, last I spoke to him, he yeah, had conquered still. it the day before. Uh, he still worked for that same employer. He's yeah. still, he has a life and, um, I think a pretty steady girlfriend. And, yeah. Um, so he's doing great. Uh, he's again, he continues as far as I know <laughs> to be, to be the Ray that I portrayed in my talk. Right. And, you know, I, I, should also credit him largely for his story and his mm-hmm. uh, his determination and his resilience because without him and people like him who come through this system despite all the odds, mm-hmm. like I wouldn't have been invited here to talk to you guys or Just City yeah. may not exist. And so um, Ray's, Ray's doing well, I hope, and uh, <laughs> I give him all the credit for a lot of the stuff. Well, mm. he's just a prime example of kind of how you guys, there is a root cause to issues like, of why you end up where you do. So like there's mental health issues, there are accessibility issues, just were you stealing because you needed the food to live? Like there Mm -hmm. are all kinds of things. And I think, you know, race story and stuff is an example. Prison is often a side effect Mm -hmm. of a greater issue. And so I kind of wanted to know, we've heard a lot about how you guys are tackling those root issues. How do we as a community work to tackle those issues? Well, I think it's more about the community than it is just city. I Mm -hmm. mean, people often want, us want to want us to answer that question like what are right. you, how are you keeping people from the system to begin with and i don't know as we are it's not mm-hmm. really where our programs are focused but right but i think th- it begins by doing exactly what we've been doing here on, on this podcast is is talk about these problems in terms of humanity and 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 ownership and collective ownership um so it begins with language and it begins with um, you know, understanding that when someone breaks the social contract, there's there's two parties to any contract, right? There's uh, that's what makes it a contract. Mm-hmm. And when when someone breaks that contract, and it, this is language that I use because I think it's helpful, um, that breaking the law. I'm talking about crime, right? right? I'm talking about someone who who breaks into your car and steals something from your car and gets caught two weeks later, like that person. So there's two people involved. Mm-hmm. There's the person who's accused of it and the person whose car was vandalized, right. was, was damaged, and so. Um, you know, and when someone breaks a contract, it's, it's reasonable to expect that there's, that something has to be done to make that okay again. And so I think we just have to begin to understand crime as that. And, um, and as you said, like ask the question, why is this person going around knocking on windows? And is it because of, is it because of peer pressure? Is it because really that person thought they were going to get some amount of value out of Mm -hmm. what they took from that car so that they could do something, whether it be take it home to mom or buy drugs or buy a new pair of shoes. Like right. there's so many things that that money could represent to someone. But but the idea is that there's a lack of hope and a lack of opportunity that led that person to your car to begin with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's complex, right? It's not very. very easy. It's not, this is not a simple problem to solve, but we begin to solve it, I think, when we start asking the question, what brought that person to knock in right. the window on my car. And very rarely we do we do that. We we get angry, mm-hmm. rightfully so, that someone has damaged our brand new car and we want a pound of flesh and just to forget about it. Well, that's not gonna doesn't solve anything. That's not gonna, <laughs> you know, make the contract whole again. And um it, it, the, you know, countries in Europe do this really, really well because the, the very beginning of this problem they see as as everyone's problem. Mm. Right. This person needs to be held to account and and we need to 
maybe extract a pound of flesh. I don't know. But we also, the bigger part is how do we bring him back to us and trust him or her to know that they're not going to break the contract again? It's a, it's everyone's problem. But we do this other thing that we started talking about, about the worst thing we've ever done. We, mm-hmm. we other people. We set them off. Always going to be over here. It's a lot easier for us as Americans too because, by the way, most of the people in this community at least who, who we other look like the people we owned 200 years ago. So it, it all is easy for us. It's easy to fall into that trap of othering and doing only the punishment side of this when we have to begin to think about it more like the Europeans do, that it's a, all of our problems immediately mm. and will be for a long time unless we get it right. No, I think that's – I find that I – mean, I'm sure this is true in, in other – you know, urban communities, but it feels very true in Memphis, in our city, where it's like the intersection of troubled and complex systems where, you know, in in the situation that um, Christy was describing, you know, the intersection of the criminal justice system with the healthcare system, with mm-hmm. our ability to, uh, our, our workforce initiatives, you know, like how, how do all these things interact? And then the problems become very big. And I think it becomes really easy for us all to go, well, like, it is. It is the way it's it is. Too far gone. Which we is why. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that you know, I always find it really helpful or sort of just like personally calming <laughs> to look at other communities who have figured out how to do this this big sort of bureaucratic thing, um, but center it on again this like be- greater good for the community. And I think, you know, my. <laughs> I feel like that is that is what is missing from the conversation about criminal justice in Memphis. That is what is missing around conversations on safety. Um, and when we talk about policing, again, we're talking about a Band-Aid on this like much bigger mm-hmm, and more complex issue. Um, well, I you know we've 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 taken up a lot of your time. Before we <laughs> let you go, um, I want to ask one. I know you guys recently got a. A donation from the NFL. Mm-hmm. Um, I assume that's because you guys are really into football. <laughs> right. um, that's or, yes, you, you got it. You nailed it. We're good. huge. <laughs> just City. No, that's not the reason, but yes. Well, tell us about I that. I am now. Go sport. So tell us how that came about and, and what that means for the organization. Yeah, my, I can. Just, Feel my 16-year-old son rolling his eyes right now <laughs> as I, because I, I'm a sports fan and love love football in the NFL. But um, it came about because I think they, you know, Tennessee being an NFL state, and and they were, you know, very, obviously very concerned with what what happened in America yeah. in 2020, and um, and we're across the country looking at, at places to invest. And I, you know, I, I while I do love football and and appreciate very much the NFL's support of our work and work of many, many organizations doing many great things across the country, right? This was, I think, you know, a bit of a marketing and, and, um, the NFL, no, (laughs) right. I know hard to believe. Um, and so I, I don't say that's not the end of it by any means, because the NFL is not just this shield and logo and Mm -hmm. massive corporate marketing machine. Um, it is made up of players, right? right? It is made up of people, uh, who, look an awful lot like the folks in our jail and and in jails and prisons across the country, you know, brown-skinned people mm-hmm. uh, who have had a life in many um, in many instances, not every instance, you don't want to generalize the players, but many of them have come through very difficult circumstances in their own lives. They know very much about the criminal legal system, mm-hmm. have overcome that, I mean, a million other things. Right. And their voices have not been heard either, even though they're millionaires, um, billionaires maybe, I don't know, um, 
I guess millionaires, but you know, <laughs> even though they're very well respected in their community, they make a lot of money, they live in nice neighborhoods, their voices on these issues have not been heard. Mm -hmm. And so kudos to the NFL for finally um, beginning to listen. Like, let's not forget that just a few years ago, Colin Kaepernick was was blackballed. He was he was pushed out and kept out of the National Football League for doing what the National Football League is now right. doing. So those players, man, they deserve all the credit for for steering this massive you know, machine that is the NFL into places like Just City. Like yeah. I, I can't believe it. Still, like it, yeah. they would, that they would uh, invest in our work. But it, it is because we are trying to uh, give voice to people who don't make the, to the NFL, right, and to families who don't have the benefit of a millionaire uh, favorite son who has made it to to stardom in the NFL. So uh, it's it's really exciting, and it's great more than even the money to see the NFL. Again, giving voice and, and addressing these issues in a way that uh, that is meaningful and not simply window dressing. And I credit the players, and I credit Colin Kaepernick, and I you yeah. know uh, the many like him who have who have taken a stand. And and it's good business, as it turns out, <laughs> to, <laughs> yeah. to take care of people and to not have systems that do the things that we've seen systems do, uh, and are still seeing systems do uh, in this country with you know police brutality and mm -hmm. jail and prison conditions and things like that. So. Uh, it's really exciting. Uh, we hope, despite my comments just now, we hope to continue to be right. a, a, a grantee of the NFL uh, and we just love to have support. Like I'm that. sure all the owners of the NFL are listening right now. So <laughs> right. Well, I think you can speak really. <laughs> yeah, I think so too. Um, well, you mentioned, and I'll, I'll close this out by asking, for those, I think that we are at a, at a moment in history when more people um, from all different kinds of walks of life are thinking about issues of equity issues of policing. Um, and I, you know, I think this is a really good moment for anybody who is hearing about Just City for the first time. Where can they go either for your organization or other places um, to, to learn more, to educate themselves, to feel like they understand this issue yeah. with, with greater depth? Yeah, there are no other places. It's just, it's just city. Justcity.org <laughs> slash give is the only place. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I kid. Justcity.org is a great place to start locally. We, we feature some of, our, um, some of our programs and there's some great videos on there. Uh, that are not just me talking at TEDx <laughs> uh, that, that help demonstrate the problem. We got a great video uh, about um, a young lady that we helped get out of women's prison a few years ago uh, and plenty other videos. So go check those out. And, you know, the, the, the issue more broadly, um, I mean, frankly, if you go to the National Civil Rights Museum, which we mm. as Memphians might not ever think to do as, as quickly as folks from out of town, like it is an amazing um, you know, arc to its story uh, and that it ends in, in you know, mm -hmm. modern America and policing and all the things that we're seeing in the news today. Um, so visit the National Civil Rights Museum, pay attention to their programming. We partner with them when we can and uh, um, hope to do so in the future on, on you know, programs that, that bring attention to this. Uh, I mentioned Brian Stevenson and the Equal Justice Initiative. They also have a museum now in Montgomery that is remarkable. It is a um, a museum to the legacy of slavery. And they also have a memorial to those in America who were lynched uh, in racial violence and racial terror. And it is an amazing experience itself. And anything Brian Stevenson or Equal Justice Initiative puts out uh, is fundamental to this work because it does go below the policy of, you know, pre-child detention or expungement. It goes into race in America and why these are still problems in the 2020s, mm -hmm. right? Right? Why we still struggle with such disparities and why we still tolerate police officers murdering on film uh, black Americans. And um, and they're absolutely 100% right in everything that they say about race in America 
in my opinion. <laughs> so uh, support those guys, visit those guys. Um, and, you know, as we come out of the pandemic, um, Just City is going to have opportunities for people to engage in the criminal legal system and court watch again. Mm. Our court watch was hopefully what we would have been talking about right. had we not had COVID-19, but unfortunately we had to shut it down. We'll be relaunching it this year and um, looking for volunteers. It runs because people are willing to give us a few hours to go and, and watch court happen and then tell us what they see. And mm. um, so we're, we're trying over the course of the next year, 18 months um, to give the community a sense of what's happening in their name with their tax dollars in the criminal legal system. And Court Watch will be a big part of that. So you can even go right now and sign up on our website. And uh, when we get things going, we'll, we'll reach out to you and, mm -hmm. um, and invite you into the courtrooms to see, uh, to see it in, in action. And that's really, really going to be critical to our work going forward. Well, thank you so much, Josh, for your time today. It's been illuminating. Um, again, if you are listening today, we hope that you go volunteer with Just City. You go make a donation to Just City. Yes. Um, if you do that, I understand it will unlock all the information. Yes, right, yes. It's, it's a subscription. <laughs> it's a, yeah. yeah, it's a subscription. Um, but thank you so much, Josh, for, for being with us today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you guys for having me. Yeah. It's always a pleasure to talk about this stuff. Thanks. And guys, just a reminder, if you want to find Josh's TED Talk, all you have to do is go to YouTube.com, type in Josh Pickler, TED Talk, first thing that comes up, and you can watch him perform live on stage. There you go. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Josh. Yeah, thanks, y'all. All right, well, that about does it for this week's episode of Meanwhile in Memphis. If you liked what you heard, you want to learn more about Just City, you can go to justcity.org. That's J-U-S-T city.org. If you want to learn more about New Memphis, uh, if you, again, liked what you heard and want to know more about what we're up to, you can go to newmemphis.org, where we have... Lots of information about our programs, all of our events, and we happen to have and a great event coming up. Christy, tell us about it. Yes, guys, our Celebrate What's Right, our next luncheon is coming up in May. Join us for a virtual panel that is generously sponsored by our friends at First Horizon Foundation and Blue Cross Blue Shield of Tennessee. And at that talk, we're going to be exploring Memphis's unique food scene and discuss what the future holds for it. You know, Memphis has evolved into not just a culinary destination, but a city with a food conscience. And it's becoming an epicenter of entrepreneurial activity. And we're seeing an explosion in these locally owned businesses from food trucks to coffee connoisseurs to breweries and restaurants, just moving our food scene forward. Um, and because they grew locally, they're supported locally, and that just boosts our economy while also filling our bellies, which is super, you know, we love that for us. <laughs> um, so the event is focused on paving the way of the path for entrepreneurship and success in the culinary space, including equitable access to careers and who's helping to lead the charge, both in elevating local restaurateurs and the need for the community. So I know you're on pins and needles to know who do we have coming to this talk. Well, it'll be moderated by our friend Cynthia Daniels, who is a well-known Memphian in her own right because she's fabulous. But technically, her titles are she is the chief event strategist. Golly, that's a hard word to say. Cynthia Daniels and Co. And she is a visionary of the Memphis Black Restaurant Week. And then we also have another superstar, Kelly English, who is the chef and owner of Restaurant Iris in Second Line, Sabine Lane. Langer, I would need to figure out how to say that. Um, but yes, Miss Sabine Langer will be with us as well. And she is the founder of Global Cafe. If you guys do not know what Global Cafe is, I need you just to stop listening right now and go Google it and go pick up some fresh fruit drinks that they have. 
it's a godsend. And then lastly, but not leastly, we have Mariko Wiley, who is the chef and owner of Rico's Kickin' Chicken Food Truck and is an instructor of the one-on series Food Truck 101 classes. So that was a mouthful. I know you're probably like, I stopped listening years ago. But no, I'm just hungry. Yeah, yeah, right. Like, so guys, just please tune in on May. What's that date? May 25th, I believe. And you can get tickets at newmemphis.org slash events and just register right there on our Eventbrite page. And last but not least, we are on WYXR right now coming to you live. And just as a reminder, you can find us every Tuesday, as Anna has already mentioned, from 8 to 9 a.m. And after every live airing, we are on streaming services at 901 a.m. because we're geniuses and punny that way and you can find us on the podcasting network so again thank you so much to wxr for giving us this platform and we hope you tune in next week bye guys meanwhile in memphis is brought to you in partnership with wyxr produced by new memphis and hosted by animal and ellis and christy mullen for more information please visit newmemphis.org audio for this show is recorded and produced by the oam network for more information please visit pod901.com